0: Well, let's do this, because let's pick up where we left off last week. Now, we've been in this series, Whatever Happened to the Power of God, because there are many people that woke up this morning and went to a church that believes in a higher power, but not necessarily in the moving and the living, breathing God that we talk about, the God of Scripture, the God in the Bible who is interactive with His people all the time and every phase. We've adopted a mindset of God that's more of a deistic type thing where He's up there, He's a higher power, He'll ultimately drop the hammer when the time comes, but other than that, He does not intervene in your life, He doesn't mess with you, any of that kind of stuff. But that's not the God of Scripture, that's not the God of the Bible. We begin looking at this, trying to figure out, where did God go? He kind of disappeared, he, He's been off the scene, what, what What? on earth ever happened to Him? And so, as we have got into this a little bit, we've dug in deeper and deeper and deeper, looking at some of the behaviors that we have, some of the practices that we've adopted. I say we as the church as a whole, not we necessarily here. And we look at that, is that what's intervening? Is it? Is it an idea of Scripture? You, did you know that if you don't believe that God moves in on behalf of people, there's a good chance that you may never recognize it when it happens. Well, see, something amazing happened, miraculous. Doctors all the time, you'll hear about a miraculous healing, and the doctor will spend everything he's got trying to figure out how on earth that happened. Because it can't be supernatural because nothing supernatural exists. Not all doctors, but some. And to look at it and say, oh my goodness, I don't know, you know, I mean, Neil is an example, standing here today after the accident he had. It is a miracle that he's still here, number one, but a miracle that he's here already, that he's here this quickly, that he's standing up and and whatnot, and life is good. And so, what do we do with this stuff? Yeah, we could say, well, it's a miracle of modern medicine that they got him up here moving so quick. Or we could say, boy, it was the hand of God. Which one is it? Well, it's got to be the hand of God. You see, God intervenes in our lives. And we began to look at this as what happens with God. And we started looking at the patterns that you develop throughout Scripture. That the Old Testament and the New Testament are harmonious. And the fact that the foundation of the New is built upon the Old. And if you don't understand the Old Testament, you'll have a hard time understanding the New Testament. Because modern church today has adopted this fact that, well, we're a New Testament church. That old stuff has passed away. It's gone away with. That law was nailed to the cross. It's no longer relevant. It's no longer applicable. And the problem with that is, is if it's kind of like putting a house up with no foundation. It'll stand for a while, but it won't take much to knock it down. Turn my kids loose and it'll be down in 20 minutes. So, what do we do? We've got to look at the patterns in which God has moved throughout history. What He's done, when He's done it, and how He's done it. We talked about the four messianic miracles. That the expectation of the Jews. When the Messiah came, there were four things that He would do. Now, we're not going to go into that again today because we've talked about it multiple times. If you've missed it or don't know, you can either ask me afterwards or go back and listen to the previous ones. But there was an expectation that Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua... That He would respond and react in a certain way. In the healings that He did, in the movements that He did, even the words that He spoke. All of that had to do with something. And then we look back at the Old Testament. Because when we read in the Old Testament, ultimately what are we looking for here? We're looking for healing. So what do we see? Is there an expectation of healing? Well, we've read this passage every week. Let's read it again. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless His holy name. This is worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from destruction? Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy? Who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's? David speaking here. He talks about the forgiveness of sins. He talks about the healing of diseases. Some translations says sickness. There was a confident expectation that David had that one of the benefits of being in covenant with God was that, yes, your sins are forgiven, but also your diseases are healed. There was an expectation of that. And so if he's expecting that in the covenant that they had, then should we today? You see, when, we, when you look through the Old Testament, what is the one thing that God constantly talks about? He always talks about the Exodus. How when I took you by the hand and led you out of Egypt. And we read several passages that talked about that as they were in the wilderness going into the promised land, they said, if you'll obey my covenant, that I will take sickness from the midst of you and will not put any of the diseases of Egypt on you. As we studied and we looked at the ten plagues that came were a direct correlation with the gods of Egypt, judgment by God being brought on. In fact, Exodus tells us that, that it was a judgment against the gods of Egypt showing that Yahweh was up here and these other gods were down here. They were not all powerful, all knowing beings. They were not the creator and source of life. God is. Yahweh is. Yahweh is. And so we look at this and we're like, okay, what do we do with this information? We see that the Israelites wander through the wilderness and what do they do? They complain. They moan. Why did you bring us out of slavery, out of Egypt, to bring us out here to starve? So God provides manna. Why did you bring us out here to to die of thirst? So He provides water from the rock. We look at this and we're constantly seeing them do this stuff. And then in Matthew 4, we watch Jesus as He's tempted three times. That He undoes spiritually. That when He says man does not live by bread alone, it's hearkening back to the giving of the manna, the bread of life. We're going to talk about that more later. That when they were tempted, He was tempted to worship the devil. He said, get away from me, we will worship God and God alone. Hearkening back to the golden calf. All of these things were going back to the time of the Exodus. Specifically, it was time of His people. His covenant chosen people. But the culmination of that was Passover. It was Passover that brought them out of Egypt. It wasn't just some meal that they participated. It wasn't just some festival. There was an application there. If you remember that God says, now here's what you're going to do. You're going to bring in a lamb on the 10th of Nisan. We'll look at that here in a minute. On the 10th of Nisan, you're going to bring in a lamb. And it's got to be perfect, flawless, Thou spot, no blemish. And you're going to bring it into your household. And for four days, you're going to inspect this thing. And you're going to make sure it's perfect in every way. And then on twilight of the 14th of Nisan, the day of Passover, you're going to kill the lamb. And you're going to gather its blood. And you're going to take that blood and you're going to apply it to your doorpost. And then when the angel of death comes, he'll see that blood. it's a sign to him to pass over that house. There was a judgment on the firstborn that was coming, ultimately being Pharaoh. And then they were to consume the lamb in its entirety. And if they didn't, they had to take it outside and they had to burn it. There's all this picture of that's going on. And then we saw how Jesus, who was the Passover lamb that John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, who rolls into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan. And for four days, He's inspected by the Herodians, by the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, by the Essenes, ultimately with Pilate. And Pilate says... I find no fault with him and he washes his hands and yet they crucified him anyway at the time of the killing of the lambs. In fact, if you guys were here on Tuesday night, you heard some of the timelines of that. Do you know how many hours my wife spent parsing through that, trying to figure this thing out? She was driving me nuts with it, asking me all these questions. We had to bring in some smarter people than me and I know you're shocked to hear that that's even possible, but believe me, it is. So just calm down a little, but... But, I mean, it's like all of this stuff fit to a T. Jesus fulfilled Passover. He fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which started the next day. Why? Because there was no leaven in Him. Sin. There was no sin in Him. And then, of course, the Feast of first fruits, The rising of the dead. It all happened just like the pattern had laid out. And so we saw on the calendar, and we'll look at this Jewish calendar here, is that originally the month of Tishri was the first of the year. That's where you get Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, because they have a civil calendar and a religious calendar. So they still celebrate New Year's here. It's the Day of Atonement. But God said that this will be the beginning of months for you. The Nisan 1. And sometimes it says a bead or something like that. I mean, don't get hung up on that. They just got different names for it. But... You see exactly what He did. That He died on Passover, was in the grave on unleavened bread, and rose on first fruits. Then, of course, what happened on Passover? The giving of the Holy Spirit. There were three feasts left. Right? The Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the fall feasts, and those are what Jesus will fulfill at His return. But what was going on with all of this? Well, ultimately... The guarantee and the benefits that came from God that David is speaking of was underneath the old Mosaic covenant. A covenant between God and the people of Israel. When they came out, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he says, okay, here are the terms. And if you agree to these terms, you'll be blessed. But if you agree to these terms and you break my commandments, you will be cursed and you'll be dealing with the consequences. And he goes to the nation of Israel and says, people, do you agree? And they said, all that he says, we will do. And then they sacrificed, there was blood cut for the covenant, and it was so. And Moses goes back up on the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights, they don't know what happens, there's where the golden calf comes in, they already broke it, didn't take them long. That covenant was broken multiple times. But Jesus came to do what? Bring a new covenant. And that's what we're going to get into today. Because this is where, where, where it starts to shift. This is where we start to get into more of these ideas, dealing with the concept of atonement. You see, if there was a promise of God in the Mosaic covenant, one of which man could break because it was essentially a contract between God and man, what about the new covenant? Who is that covenant in behalf of? Well, let's look at this in Jeremiah chapter 31. There's two places that it talks about this in the Old Testament specifically. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, behold... The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Remember, the nation was divided. You have the northern and southern kingdom. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Which covenant is he talking about? The Mosaic covenant, right? That is the covenant that he made when he took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. So we know what he's talking about. My covenant, which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make in the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No more shall man, every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now this is a change. You see, he's making a distinction between the old covenant and the covenant to come. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He was a prophet of the nation of Israel during a time of captivity. And there wasn't a lot of hope. There wasn't a lot of glamour. You know, we hear the the passage, you know, the plan that I have for you, plan to prosper you. And all of that kind of stuff. What's that talking about? Bringing them out. That if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, that I will hear from heaven and I will bless their land. And we use that all the time in connection to America. We just need to get back to God. And that is true. But that specifically is talking about the captivity. It's giving hope to them that this captivity is going to come to an end. And you're going to go back into Israel. And God has literally healed your land. Because they were supposed to keep every seventh year a land Sabbath. They let the land rest. They didn't farm it. They just let it rest. And they never did that from the time that they got in there. And that was the exact same time and the amount of time they spent in Babylon. It all lines up. And so God is making a promise to them, giving them hope. And he's saying, listen, guys, this is not going to be according to that covenant. It's going to be completely separate. Why? Because this one they broke. The new covenant that Jesus talked about is unbreakable. This isn't the only time there's been an unbreakable covenant. There was a covenant with Noah that God made that was completely unbreakable. Because God said that, I will never again destroy the earth with water. And he gave a sign. The sign was the rainbow. I'll never do this again. It was a promise. What did Noah have to do to make sure that didn't happen? Nothing. He didn't have to do anything. It was a promise by God. You had a promise of God or a covenant with David. David, somebody from your lineage will sit on the throne in Jerusalem for all of eternity. Okay, what did David have to do? Nothing. But the Mosaic covenant was breakable. It was one where it said, listen, if you do this, then I will do that. It was a give and take type of thing. There's a distinction there. But this new covenant is going to be different. Now let's look at Exodus chapter 36. We're starting in verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel... Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nation wherever you went. I will sanctify my great great name which have been profaned among the nation, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments, and you will do them. Again, what are we talking about? This is hearkening back to that same concept, this new covenant. You see, the old covenant had tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments. Talked about how it was written on the front and the back of each stone. And they had 613 laws all in the application of how they kept the law of God and how things were atoned for and the sacrificial system and the Levites, the priests, and then the high priest, and, and the type of garments that they could wear and how they trimmed their beard and the foods that they could eat. And if they missed any one of them, they missed them all. Aren't you glad it's changed? Right? Because we miss them every day. I had a young person one time tell me, he's like, boy, I wish God would have just written out this big old rule book so I knew what to do and what not to do. That would be so much easier. I was like, well, if that's the case, that book would be so big, you'd never read it. And secondly, you'd still screw it up. So what difference does it make? You know, we got to look at this and say, okay, what's happening here? So now he's taking the laws of God and writing them on our hearts putting them in our minds, writing them on our heart. He's putting a new heart in us. He's giving us a new spirit. He's putting His spirit within us to walk in His statutes. This is a whole new distinction here. This has never happened before. And we watch this whole thing take place. And Jesus talks about this in the fulfillment of Passover. And this is where we're going to start today. Luke chapter 22. In verse 14, we're in the Passover meal. Jesus is getting ready to the cross. He said, with great desire and fervency, I have wanted to eat this Passover with you. And so here he is. It's time. When the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And they said to him, with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now stop there. Why is he talking about Passover here being fulfilled in the kingdom of God? Because there was an expectation there. You see, that was the design from the very beginning. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians that all of these things were written down for our benefit learn from them here he's talking about the passover i'm going to eat this with you and i'm no longer going to eat it until it's fulfilled so there is a fulfillment coming of the passover and then he took the cup and he gave thanks and said take this and divide it among yourselves for i say to you i will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of god comes okay he took the bread he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, this is an interesting statement, and we talked about this. It says the cup after supper. There were four cups in the Passover meal. Two were drank during the meal. Two were drank after the meal. We know, because Luke tells us here, that this was the cup after supper. This is known as the cup of redemption. When Jesus goes to Gethsemane, he says, Lord, not my will, but your will be done, but let this cup pass from me. The cup of redemption, the giving of blood, and he makes the statement, this cup is the new covenant that is in my blood, which is shed for who? For you, for all people. This is the new covenant, this cup right here, the shedding of his blood. Now, we don't understand this because it's very symbolic and we often miss it. But what's happening here in front of His disciples, these guys have been following around for three years. He's saying, guys, now is the time. This cup is here. This is my blood. It's getting shed for whom? For you. And we talk about that all the time, right? We talk about the blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remissions of sin, Right? None. Zero. It has to be. Underneath the old system, uh, uh, the sacrificial system, they would sacrifice the lambs, they would sacrifice all the different sacrifices, and it was the application of the blood. That blood had to be captured. It would be sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. On all the things in the tabernacle and in the temple, it made things clean ceremonially. Whenever somebody sinned, they touched a dead thing, they would be ceremonially uncleansed. They would have to go in mikveh and wash, and then they would come and bring a sacrifice. And then after so many days, they would be once again clean. But this blood here, this is the new covenant. It's in Jesus' blood, the Passover lamb. Remember, in the Passover, if they killed the lamb and they ate the lamb, didn't matter. But if they didn't apply the blood, it was of no avail. That, still, that same judgment was coming upon them. And so we talk about the blood. All the time, right? It was the blood that was shed for us. We've got songs, right? Oh, the blood of Jesus. It washes white as snow. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. We've got all of these old songs. Some of you guys are like, I've never heard that before. Well, you're too young, okay? There are all these old songs talking about the blood of the Lamb. We walk around and say, I plead the blood of Jesus on this. Like it's some sort of a magic wand. What was the blood shed for? You. Not stuff for you. It was shed for you. But what's the other part that he said that we always miss and we always look over? Let's go back. Now look at this. In verse 19. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now here's the thing. Who was the body given for? Same people that the blood was given for notice he's making a distinction the body and the blood there's two separate things here now I talked about this last week I happen to keep my uh, my matzo cracker here these are these are special now in the Passover meal they had to have unleavened bread they had different parts of it that they would go through ceremonially remember they had to get all the leaven out of their house and when they would get to the part in Passover was the breaking of the bread they would go in here and they would break it like this It's sort of in halves, not really in this case, but this is cheap matzah, this is not good matzah. In fact, it even says not for Passover, so I don't know why you would ever have this, but that's besides the point. And you'll notice that it is burnt, it is striped, you can kind of see that, and it's also pierced. If you hold it up to light, you can see through it. That is a requirement of Passover. And Jesus just said something. This is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. We talk about the blood, but why are we missing this part? What is significant about the breaking of bread and the body of Christ? You see, when we talk about the idea of the guarantee of healing, healing being in the atonement, was there a promise underneath the old covenant of healing? I will take all sickness and disease from you if you keep my covenant. Yes, there was. There was a promise there. But here he mentions his body. Now, we look at this and we say, okay, what does this have to do with Passover, the Passover lamb? Did you notice that the breaking of the body of the lamb is actually not even mentioned? It kind of steers away from the pattern a little bit. It, it goes in a different direction. This here is significant. And I'm going to show you over the weeks to come that this is a part that we are missing. We are missing this. This wasn't just symbolism. There was a purpose in this. Now, let's look at Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest. What's he talking about? We've got a shift here. Underneath the old covenant, who was the high priest? It was Aaron and anybody that came from the line of Aaron. And that was the only way you could be high priest. But now, we've got a new covenant. And it says that this new high priest comes from the order of Melchizedek. We talked through this, if you were here on Wednesday night, went all the way through the book of Hebrews and he we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the lord erected and not man so what's he talking about remember the tabernacle that moses created was what he saw from god and he created it just that way but who created it moses did But now we've got a different tabernacle. Not that the Lord created, not by man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth... He would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So, This covenant that Jesus is the high priest of, after the order of Melchizedek, completely different than the old one, is a better covenant that's established on better promises. So if there was a promise in the old, we know that the promise in the new is better. Why do we know that? Well, that's what it just said. It's established on better promises. What makes this covenant better? As you will begin to see, it's because you cannot break it. Because it wasn't between you and God, it was between the Father and the Son. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach their neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Now what did he quote here? The writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31 about this new covenant. How Jesus is the high priest of that covenant. That this covenant is is a better covenant and it's established on better promises. Now, here's another thing. He says that everybody will know that He is Lord. What does Romans 1 say? That they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because instead of worshiping the Creator, they worship the creation. Because although they knew God in their heart, they did not worship Him as God. You see, Romans 1 tells us that everybody knows that God exists. There's something inside of us that lets us know that God exists. But what do we do? We suppress that truth because we love the dark. We hate the light. We don't want the light. We want to do what we want. Read Romans 1 all the way through and look at the judgments that are a result of that. It's very important that you understand that. This new covenant is a changing of the guard. It's now completely different. And Jesus said there's two parts to that. There's the shedding of blood. But what about his body? Well, let's look at this a little bit more. In order to understand the new covenant was coming in the Passover lamb and all that, you have to read Isaiah 52 and 53. You have to. In fact, there are a lot of Jewish rabbis that will never even read this, and they'll advise their people not to. Because when you read it, it sure sounds like Jesus. In fact, I heard one of them say one time, yeah, that does sound like Jesus, but we know Jesus isn't the Messiah, therefore, that's not about Jesus, right? We call that circular reasoning. So let's start in verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to read to the end. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And shall he, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and, that, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Verse, or chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. What did that just say? He's ugly. That gives so many of you hope, doesn't it? Just kidding. But, what he's making a distinction. The attraction to Jesus is not because he's a good looking guy. Look at the kings of Israel. Why did they like Saul? Because he looked like a king. Talks about his hair and all that other stuff. You see, that's not why they're coming. Verse 3, He is despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. And we're going to come back to that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before His shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. He was taken from the prison and from judgment. And who would declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. From the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence... Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasures of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressor, and he bore the sin of many and made transgression, intercession, excuse me, for the transgressors. It's a mouthful, it's a lot to say, but the part that I want to focus on as we get going forward, it's the, by his stripes, we are healed. Verse 5, when he says, we were wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities. What is that talking about? It's talking about the body. You notice it says, by his stripes. Remember I told you, this cannot be true Passover matzah without the stripes that are on there. It has to have it. If it doesn't, it does not count. It has to. It also has to be pierced. You see that Isaiah here, the prophet, is talking about this. By his stripes, we are healed. Well, what does that mean? Well, obviously, this is talking about spiritual healing, not physical healing. It has to be, right? Because the whole thing is about redemption of mankind. It has to be talking about simply spiritual healing in the context of it. Because why did Jesus die? He didn't make, die to make your life better. He died to make you right with God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So this has to be talking simply about spiritual healing. Unless it isn't. You see, Jesus made a distinction. There's a difference between the bread and the bread. And there's a difference between the wine. There's a difference between the body, and there's a difference between the blood. And we've got to parse through this, because what I'm going to tell you is that healing is in the atonement. It is a promise of God, and we should be walking in that today, just like they did back then. But we don't, and the reasons why we don't, and we'll talk about that more later. I called a Jewish friend of mine this week, just because I wanted to get his take, saying, okay, you've got the significance of the lamb in Passover and Passover in the blood. And Jesus talking about that this is the new covenant in my blood. But what does the matzah have to do? The breaking of the bread and dealing with this is my body which is broken for you. Now this is a believer in Jesus. But what he doesn't believe in is that healing is in the atonement. Now I'll take this approach. That there is a promise of healing in scripture. Whether it's in the atonement or not really doesn't matter. Because the Bible is very clear that it's God's will to heal people. But I asked him, what, what, what do you do with that? And he's like, you know, I really don't know. I mean, you know, matzah is unleavened. Leaven was a picture of sin. Jesus was sinless. That's probably what he's talking about. Because he can't let him go any further than to say like, well, why did Jesus have to be beaten? And why was he striped? Like, why, why did all of that happen? He can't go there because he doesn't believe this. So to begin today, this we're just laying the groundwork for this, and we're going to take our time here because we have to understand it. If there's a promise of God out there, don't you want it? Don't you want to walk in it? I mean, my goodness, if God promised me salvation, all I have to do is bow my heart, ask for forgiveness, and receive him, wouldn't you want that? Yes. The answer is no. Some people don't, do they? It's right there for the taking, but they won't because they love the darkness rather than the light. And there are people today that love sickness rather than life. So, as we get into this, I want to look at this. We're going to look at something called the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. It is the Bible that Jesus would have read. It is the Bible that the disciples would have used because they spoke Greek. And it was, the reason it's called that, it was done about 200 years, 300 years, something like that before Jesus was on the earth. And uh, you had a Greek speaking world. And so it was put together by 70 scholars who would translate all the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. So the average person could read it because during that time, that's what they spoke. And so, When we look at the Septuagint, one thing you'll notice is that sometimes the numbers don't always line up with what we have in our Bibles. The reason for that is because the numbers are completely arbitrary. They're nothing more than marking points. They were added in our Bible around the 300s. Um, You know, it has nothing to do with anything. Those are not inspired, so don't get hung up on that. But what I want to look at here is Psalm 103, but I want to read it in the Septuagint. And Psalm 102 in the Septuagint reads like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And do not forget all His praise. The one who is merciful towards all your lawlessness. The one who heals all your sicknesses. Now we're in the Greek here. This is now an English translation of the Greek Septuagint. He heals all your sicknesses. All of them. Does it say some of them? It does not. He's making a promise. This is still underneath that old covenant. Now, I'm going to start today looking at this word, he heals. Because is this spiritual healing? Is this dealing with something else? Let's look at this. The Greek word used here for heals, all right? I think I've got this thing up here. That's it right there. Can anybody read that? Neither can I. Now, why we're using the Septuagint? Because the same Greek that was written for the Septuagint is the same Greek that is used in the New Testament. So it makes it easy to just cross-reference things, right? Well, this word for healing is used 28 times in the New Testament. Let me show you an example of this, okay? Matthew 8, verse 8. The saturian answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. What does he mean there? Spiritually? No. We know what happens, right? Right. The person is physically ill, and Jesus makes them physically well. As you're going to see as we do this, it's always talking about physical healing. Mark chapter 5, verse 29, Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. What is this one talking about? This is specifically talking about the woman with the issue of blood. And we talked about that, how she'd had the faith to go in there and grab the tassels that were on his garment because in Malachi it prophesies that when the Messiah comes, the Son of Righteousness, he'll come with healing in his wings. That's the same word used for zitzitz that's on the edge of those tassels. It was a promise, it was an expectation of the Messiah that he would be there with healing in his wings. And she was healed, same word. own is how you say this. Luke chapter 9, verse 2. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to do what? Heal the sick. John chapter 4, verse 47. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So here we have all four gospels using this word. I said it's used 28 times throughout the New Testament. Here's four gospels. I stopped there because I didn't want to make you go read all 28. You can on your own time. Every single time Jesus healed, right? Every single time. Was there ever a time in the New Testament where somebody approached Jesus looking for healing that He did not oblige? There's not one. Well, let's look at the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which is proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good in healing all who were oppressed by the devil For God was with him. Same word. He healed all, all of them, every single one of them who were oppressed of the devil. He never left one behind. That anybody who came to him asking, he certainly did. You see the same word here is the same word that's used by David in Psalm 103. A confident expectation as a benefit of being in covenant with God, that healing comes with that. Now the question is, are we in covenant with God? Absolutely. This new covenant in my blood, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And that's what we do with communion. We're remembering the covenant that Jesus did. But this word is also used someplace else. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 21, it says this, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. I'm going to Isaiah 53 there who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Now here's Peter quoting out of Isaiah 53, and he says, by whose stripes you were healed. Well, what is the stripes talking about? Was Jesus' blood striped? No, his body was striped. 39 lashes, right? He was beaten. He said he was unrecognizable. By whose stripes you were healed. That word healed is the exact same one that we read in Psalm 103. In the Septuagint case, Psalm 102. Ioname. But is it the same one that's used in Isaiah 53? Now let's look at this. Isaiah 53, verse 5, in the Septuagint. But he was wounded because of sins, and he became sick because of our lawless acts. The discipline of our peace was upon him. By his bruise, you were healed. It's the same exact word. Now, why am I telling you all of this? I'm showing you that the promise in Psalm 103 and the promise of the new covenant and in the Greek, how it was used with the writers, wrote in Greek, it's always the same word. It's dealing with physical sickness being healed. The promise here is by his stripes. So what is the significance of the body? It appears to be that there was something about that that had to do with physical healing. Would you agree with me? Is that what we just read? Is that what we looked at? See, perhaps we've overlooked this. Now, we're not done except for today. But we're going to begin to break this down and look at this concept. Because frankly, guys, according to what I read in Scripture, we should be walking in health. And if we're being honest... We're not. We have problems. We have a weak church. We need to be following what God has said, what God has commanded, doing His work. We're going to break this down every week, and we're going to look at this. And I promise you, and I'm asking you not to miss, try to be here no matter what, is that if we can catch what God is doing here, and the promise to you under this new covenant built on better promises, then my goodness, what would life be like for us here?